0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are closing our May issue today and tomorrow, and it is a treasure trove. Uh, We have Jim Meggs, yesterday's podcast guest, uh, uh, taking apart the infrastructure bill. We have Matt Continetti on uh, how Biden's uh, activist agenda is actually more a sign of desperation than confidence in the political viability of his and his party's platform. We have Hal Brands on the challenge to Biden from China and Jonathan Schanzer on the way in which the Biden administration seems determined to uh, screw up our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, A a great piece uh, by Brendan Stewart on Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, Rob Long on whether there will ever be a nude scene in a movie ever again. Just uh, just fantastic stuff. Uh, it should be up um, probably Friday on the website, so keep an eye out for that. The man who is shepherding that material into print is none other than Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Also, of course, with us, Noah Rothman, Associate Editor. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today, and we are fortunate to have with us Uh, to discuss the most important news of the day, the week, and maybe the year. Bloomberg columnist Eli Lake, our old friend and uh, contributor, a man who wrote uh, three magnificent pieces on the Russiagate uh, scandal. Uh, Hi, Eli. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. So, Eli, uh, let us discuss uh, President Biden's, uh, I guess, the announcement, or I don't know what you call it, because sort of a background briefing announcement that uh, that we are um, uh, pulling out of uh, Afghanistan.
1: Well, today he will be making, I think, a formal announcement. Yesterday they rolled out the briefing to everybody uh, to prepare everyone for what they were doing. And uh, it is not um, adhering to what was a May 1 deadline in um the, tr- the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban, which was not really a deadline in the sense that it was conditions based. And there's ample evidence that the Taliban has not lived up to their end of the bargain, which is to uh, distance themselves from Al Qaeda. But on the other hand, um, it is an announcement of a non conditions based withdrawal by the 20th anniversary of 9 11. So, congratulations, Joe Biden. Uh, you, uh, he's going to say, we're ending the forever war. Um, in some ways it's not a new position for Biden. He was somebody who cautioned against, uh, the surge, uh, in the first Obama term. Um, he campaigned along with every other Democrat on ending the Afghanistan war. Um, so in some ways we could say that we saw this coming, but there was always a sense that now that Biden's in charge. He will listen to the professionals in the military and everybody else who will say if you do this, the elected government in Kabul, which our blood and treasure made possible, will fall. And that means women will stop going to school in Afghanistan. That means that we will no longer have any ability on the ground in terms of human intelligence to track Al Qaeda and other jihadists. And it will invite more chaos into the world. And uh, will be a victory for uh, the, uh, I think the term Islamic fascist is the, the right one for the Taliban. So, I mean, the Taliban are some of the worst, one of the worst people of these eighth century barbaric fanatics will take over the country. Again, the same people who hosted Al Qaeda, they have shown zero indication that they have they've changed in any meaningful way. All of that will happen if, you withdraw the remaining few thousand American forces in the country and all of, the, all of that, what that entails, meaning that other countries have contributed fewer. So there's a small garrison of people, largely in and around Kabul. They help, they guide, they train. It's not anything close to the height of the Afghanistan or the Iraq wars or anything like that. If you wanna remove them and fill your campaign progress, you'll reap the whirlwind, that's what everybody says who is fighting the war in Afghanistan. It's not a controversial view, but they are going ahead and doing it anyway.
0: Eli, you you mentioned a term, conditions-based, and I I want to delve into this because I I have the background briefing uh, transcript in front of me, and it's very interesting if you sort of think about it for two seconds. So the senior administration who did the briefing Answers a question. The question is Is September 11th a conditions based target for withdrawal or is it a hard commitment to get to zero? And the official says this This is not conditions based. The president has judged that a conditions based approach, which has been the approach of the past two decades, is a recipe for staying in Afghanistan forever, and so he has reached the conclusion that the United States will complete its drop-down, will remove its forces from Afghanistan before September 11th. Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. It's a very interesting thing to say, um, uh, and it's an honest thing to say, even though it's slightly jargony, which is Biden and the Biden administration are saying that regardless Of the situation in the country, let's say in August, before the drawdown is to be complete. The Taliban, you know, are like two miles from Kabul. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Regardless of the conditions, this is going to happen because the conditions-based approach, meaning there are troops, there's a conflict between the Taliban and the government, things are going on and you make your determinations on what you should do based on what's happening that day or that moment or whatever, based on are no longer operational. We're doing it it regardless. It really doesn't have to be this complicated. There's a word that
2: we use when we're searching for an antonym for conditional and it's unconditional, which is precisely what we're pursuing here an unconditional withdrawal. Um, Briefly, Eli, I want to ask you a question. I don't know to the extent you can even answer it. When you hear Democrats, and honestly, I see more skepticism among Democrats than I do, particularly on the nationalist side of the right, for whom unconditional withdrawal is, is uh, you know, a sine qua non. But when you see Democrats concerned about this sort of thing, they talk about the politics of it. And their chief concern is, you know, that you can rationalize your way out of uh, ceding this ground back to uh, Islamic fundamentalists, because it will be subsumed within a variety of other news stories. What you can't ignore would be the optical catastrophe of a second Saigon. And that's what they're terrified of. What is the likelihood of something like that? We I don't, I do
0: describe this for people who don't know what you're referring to, because it's very important. Of course, when we pulled out Lord, do. of, well, it was, it was, you know, 45, 46 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. So when the United States pulled out of Vietnam uh, in April of 1975, uh, there were images of desperate, terrified uh, South Vietnamese, m- m- many of them people who had worked with and worked for American forces, uh, desperately trying to get into the onto the embassy grounds so that they could be saved from the wrath, vengeance, and re-education of the North Vietnamese who were about to take the city and the country over, and that those images if you've never seen them are searing and horrifying and of course what happened after that was uh the totalitarianization of south vietnam and eventually this massive refugee crisis in which hundreds of thousands of people fled vietnam on on leaky boats many thousands of them drowning in the south china sea and then, of course, this population of Vietnamese refugees who came to the United States and are among the glories of the people of, of, of the last 40 years, the, By the way, triumph an, of the Vietnamese community. Anyway, an I irony, just wanted to
1: put that down. An yeah. irony is that the, the Vietnamese Bo people who came to the United States, most of these communities have become reliable Republicans because they had such terrible experience with communism. And... Um, it, you know, it's interesting in the context of the current immigration debate. That
2: Another irony is that the current president of the United States opposed the resettlement.
1: Talked about how we were bringing you know, up. I mean, I know that we're not talking about immigration, in this country, but I'm just saying that it's that, that you know, the Vietnamese American community, I think, is is going to be you know part of the future of the Republican or the center right coalition in this country.
0: But right. to reiterate anyway, the but question, so, that, you know, so that's yeah. why I wanted to right. Go ahead, reiterate your question. To, re- to reiterate
2: the question, what is the likelihood of a situation in which the I think we can. It's fair to say unreliable Afghan security forces uh, melt away, are overrun. I mean, we have more than just one foreign actor operating in Kabul. You have a very large Russian presence that is uh, very active on the ground. One of the things that you used to hear, I don't, I don't know if it's still the case, you used to hear about how local Afghans would, would say uh um you know that they have more contact with Russian officials than they do with Americans. Americans are all holed up in, in their you know bunkers and embassies and what have you. So what is the extent to which we can expect that outcome? Seems remote but not impossible.
1: I I think that we're probably gonna see something like that. Um you know the the chances that uh I mean, listen. There's a there's an argument that was made on one of my uh, listservs that if you just give you know Western weapons and technology to people who are fighting against the Taliban and you you sort of take off the gloves, you don't have Americans there to restrain them, then perhaps they'll do well. But um, I'm I there's most people who look at this who are on the ground who are sort of the military analysts and experts on this predict that the uh, the the government will collapse. And one of the the awful things about U.S. policy, really going back to Obama's second term, but certainly uh, accelerated by Trump, is that the United States, in its desire to get a deal with the Taliban, began undermining the constitution of Afghanistan and the elected government. So in 2015, I think it was, or 2014, the U.S. pushed to create um, what's kind of offhand referred to as there's a president of Afghanistan. There's also a CEO of some kind, like there's another sort of power center in order to um, keep it going. There's all, and and under the peace plan uh, that was negotiated under Trump by Zal Khalilzad, there was an understanding that the Taliban would be sharing power with the elected government, that um, all of these things undermine the best thing the United States did in the, uh, in the last 20 years, which is to, you know, basically spawn and nurture um, an elected government that was by no means perfect, often corrupt, but had some real accomplishments, including the education of women. There are now 10 times more children going to school right now in Afghanistan than there were under the Taliban in the 1990s. Uh, the, the, The life expectancy has increased by something like 21 years.
0: Yeah, you know, um, here's what here's what the senior administration official said on this point, which yeah. is interesting. Again, if you sort of follow the logic, it's weird. Um, I would note, he said, that a lot has changed in two decades. In t- 2001, there were fewer than 900,000 children, almost all boys in school. Today, there's over 9.2 million children, 40% of which are girls in school. Life expectancy has gone from 44 years to 60 years maternal mortality rates remain far too high but have declined dramatically so this is a record that he is citing and then saying all right but now they're on and, uh, you know we we did this at great cost to ourselves we have turned this society around at least around from the horrors of the of the period when the Taliban were, were ruling it and certainly from the horrors of the of the war with the with the Soviets the tenure war uh, against the soviet occupation um but uh so we're going to claim victory and get out in that in that sense i I want to
3: read something Abe, go ahead Well, well so there are people especially on the right these days who would say to all of all of that um well that's great and that's heartening that we've accomplished these things but that's afghanistan this is the u.s um what business is it of ours? We wish them well, but <clears throat> it's not worth our blood and treasure. Um, and so I just want to point out that what, what I think is even a, a more likely outcome than the possibility of a new refugee crisis, although I agree that's certainly possible, is what happened uh, not when we left Vietnam, but when we left Afghanistan the first time or when, when we abandoned it the first time after after getting rid of the Soviets, which is that it became a breeding ground uh, and a safe haven for jihadists, uh, and namely eventually Al-Qaeda who, who attacked us. Um, so there is the national security issue is, you know, re- remains, um, I think, the foremost uh, important aspect of this. You
0: know, you, you mentioned that and it's an important thing because, um, you know, Charlie Wilson, who was the Democratic Congressman from Texas, who spearheaded and became obsessed with in the 1980s, ensuring that we did something to support the Mujahideen and uh, and uh, in their fight against the Soviets, a key element in the final collapse of the Soviet Union. And of course, he said when the Taliban came into power finally in, I think, 96, he said, we effed up the endgame. You know, we did what we did, but we effed up the end game, and here we are in twenty twenty one. And the question is, are we are we effing up the end game yet again?
2: I mean, but the the more the retrenchment right would respond with, "How when is when is the end game? What is the end game?" Um, I, I struggle to understand their position and the distinctions that they would draw between Afghanistan and, say, South Korea, Japan. Germany, Um, nevertheless, they do have a point that the endgame is ill-defined insofar as it doesn't seem to be feasible or
1: achievable. There's never... This is is welcome to real-world foreign policy. The reason that we're staying in Afghanistan is not because uh, we have a plan that in three years the Taliban will be vanquished and it'll turn into Denmark. The reason we're in Afghanistan is because if we leave, the... Elected government, which is on our side, and all of the institutions in the government and all the security forces, which are on our side, will probably fall. And that is a worse outcome than having, at this point, maybe 3,000 to 4,000 for U.S. forces, 10 to 20 billion a year, according to a CSIS study of how much all U.S. spending is. That is, to put it in perspective, 10 to 20 billion dollars a year sounds like a lot of money although maybe not anymore in light of all the infrastructure spending and everything else we have planned. But that's like not even 5% of the, uh, Let well, me I'm trying to do my math in my head very quickly. That's less than 5% of the broader U S military budget. It's about a third of what we spend on what's kind of called the it's overseas contingency planning, but it's the war on terror. That's not a lot of a commitment. If we are to be considered a great power and the, That's the cost that we pay per year to prevent a return to stadiums filled with heretics being shot en masse. It's the price we pay to keep Kabul from turning into a place where a woman who is not wearing a hijab has acid thrown in her face or is arrested and lashed publicly. That's the price that we pay to make sure that Afghanistan is never uh, a host again for Al Qaeda, where they can pr- plan another mass casualty attack like 9/11, and we seem to be like having to answer from our side of it or my side of the argument. The argument is, well, what's your plan to like vanquish the Taliban? Well, I don't, we don't have a plan to vanquish the Taliban at this point. But that's the but that are you are you willing to say that it's just not worth it? Those those risks are fine. Um, Twenty billion on the high end is, is a year is is, is too much.
2: To say nothing Look, of our access to a region where there is a great power contest, I, exactly ongoing between um, a, 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 almost a shooting war of a, ter- a, a territorial uh, contest between India and uh,
1: China, not too far from Afghanistan, where we will need a physical presence. If I, I mean, if I could, I just yeah. want to read this one thing at the end of the Washington Post story, and it involves former Secretary of State Colin Powell. And this is what he said. I wouldn't say enough is enough, said Powell, who was in charge of Bush's State Department. I'd say we've done all we can do. What are those troops being told they're there for? It's time to bring it to an end. The Soviet Union, which occupied Afghanistan for a decade until it abruptly withdrew in 1989, did it the same way, Powell said. They got tired and they marched out and back home. How long did anybody remember that? That is an astounding thing for Colin Powell to say, because what happened after the Soviet Union, their entire country collapsed and <laughs> Afghanistan turned into a horrible civil war, which ended up with nine eleven, And he used to make those speeches all the time and he seems to have forgotten it. Who remembers what that. in
0: 1989?
2: Really. Not just that, not Anything just that. I mean, the here.
0: doctrine, the doctrine that kept us in Afghanistan and in Iraq, let's just say, because there were arguments, particularly in Iraq, that you go in, you take out Saddam, you know, you put in this, uh, you know, administrator for a while, and then you leave, and you don't do anything else. It's up to them, right? And it was Powell who enumerated, according to Bob Woodward, the Pottery Barn doctrine, right. which, by the way, was a stupid name for the doctrine because Pottery Barn sells furniture, not pottery. <laughs> But if you remember, it was also, you, you can return it, things.
1: You can return things
0: if you break them. Yeah. Right. You break it, you own it. So the idea was we went in there. We did what we had to do. It was our obligation and our, it was a moral necessity and everything else to stand these countries up. And, um, if it takes a generation to stand them up at relatively low cost. Why is that so terrible? This is what Noah's referring to. Like there is no controversy except in certain bizarre quarters. Certainly there is no controversy about the troops we have in South Korea who have been there for 70 years now, or the troops that we have in Japan who have been there for 80 years, or the troops we have in Europe who have been there for 80 years. It's just that in these cases, uh, there was no unconditional surrender of the country that we vanquished, or better, or whatever, it's a different set of certain. That's the real world circumstances that you're talking about, Eli. When you say, you know, foreign policy never ends. It's not like it's right. a very rare thing when you can say, okay, this is over, and now we can move on to that. Like Obama tried that in Iraq three and times. He had to go back in. Work. Yeah, and and, hey, and I just
1: would say one more thing, one one other thing on this: we're not the Soviet Union. We're not in Afghanistan to pry its natural resources away. We're there to make sure that it doesn't become a terrorist safe haven. We're there to nurture a democracy. There has been a standing offer for the Taliban to run for elections since there was an Afghan government. That was the old conditions. So the idea that we're somehow the same as the Soviet Union or the British Empire or the Russians and all of the people who play the great game because we're just the, the latest empire it's the it's the graveyard of empires. It doesn't really. I'm an exceptionalist. I'm an American exceptionalist. That's not what the United States was doing in Afghanistan, and to compare it to the Soviet Union is actually a great slander against our country.
3: Um, I want to comment on something that may seem like a small point to some, but yeah. I think it's actually a very large point, uh, which is that so Biden picked 9 uh, 11, uh, uh, the 20th anniversary anniversary of September 11th, for us to. Uh, Hand over the country and leave. Um, I'm sure he thinks that's that the administration thinks that's clever and moving in some way. It is going to be um, a remarkable, symbolic uh, win for the Taliban. They don't know what 9 11 is. They, that's not that's not a date that that means something to them as well. On the 20th anniversary, they're going to see this this sort of pageant of U S. defeat. Leave on nine eleven, as as if to drive home the point that this is this is uh, uh, the the, we are admitting our failure in response to what you did that day. You win.
2: It's a very big point, and it's mind boggling. It's astounding what what they were thinking in this White House. I want to read an expose on how this decision came about and just the blinkered. Uh, chauvinistic uh, ideals that were that were applied here and, and the, who thought the theatrics of this was gonna was gonna make sense it's, it's it's hard to hard to fathom
0: and no i think it's biden's idea by the way because biden often has the you know has spent his career having bizarre boneheaded gimmicky ideas in foreign policy split this country into three split right. that country into three you know, created this and do that and do the other thing. Like it's he he actually has a taste for this stuff. And I think he's the one who said, look, we'll do it on the anniversary, so we can say, we're out. It's been 20 years. We can do it. And so now why don't we just spend a, a couple of minutes playing devil's advocate against ourselves? Look, the argument that the argument that uh we've been we've been in Afghanistan for two decades and the result has not been, let's say, um, you know, hasn't been, uh, has boosted the American self-confidence or, you know, had this kind of uh, unquestioned positive effect on the world or something like that. That's an argument. I don't think it's true because of course you can't run the counter positive, which is what would have happened had we not gone in or what would have happened had we left, you know, after six months, or what would have happened if we had actually gone through the caves of Tora Bora uh, properly and 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 found bin Laden uh, and not let him run off to Abbottabad for for eight years um, so if the mission had been handled better uh, logistically maybe in 2001 or whatever we hadn't done it at all what we don't know is what on earth we would have been facing because you can't run you can't you don't know what you know is uh, wouldn't have been good, probably. At the and and the question is is what we did there better than the alternative? And I I don't honestly know, except for the loathing of American involvement abroad that begins on the far right, and then I've begin began on the far left with people doing things like wearing burkas to protest American. Uh, action in Afghanistan after 9 11, wearing burqas. Susanna Heschel, a professor at Dartmouth, did she really do staged that? a whole thing about how everybody should wear a burqa so we shouldn't go into Afghanistan, as though our going into Afghanistan wasn't a way of liberating women from the burqa if they did not want to wear it. I mean, that was so that starts on the far left and it now migrates and militates down into the right, which either thinks that America, forget being an exceptionalist, is like is a sort of an actively bad actor. We've become an immoral, unjust country with bad morals and we, we don't want the right things and we have no business imposing our morality on people because we're sick. It's a you know mirror
3: image so that's of our it, but type it's of also blessing. that it's the, it's
2: the expense of resources Uh, In a way that is uh, inefficient, because we should be devoting those resources to the development of the, you know, the the hinterland and providing uh, services and basic goods to American poor. And this, okay, so then, so
0: that, so that, so then we're putting together the right and the left in a total merger. Because in the story in the Washington Post by Anne Gearin this morning, with Afghan pullout, Biden aims to reset America's global agenda. Here's what she says. Uh, Biden sees the war against the Taliban as a drag on the need to deal with bigger threats like China climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, and even a terrorism menace that has mutated significantly in the two decades, by which he means the terrorist menace meaning domestic, right? Um, so Biden's saying, I want that money to spend it elsewhere. Not It's not just you know, whoever, the sort of the as the anti-involvement right that that is saying this, they're 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 coming together, and as far as I can tell, as Eli alluded to, uh, ten billion dollars to Biden is pocket change. So I don't believe it's about the money. Look,
2: I keep it's- going back to South Korea, um, in part because it is such a it's an example that is doesn't that, that I think really exposes per- the, particularly the nationalist rights agenda. We were in South Korea and remained there. It was not a, a peaceful occupation. It was not; we were not incubating democracy. Far from it. We were balancing against great powers. And in Afghanistan, you share borders with Central Asia and the Russian sphere, the Western China, Xinjiang, which is you know in the news constantly. And Pakistan, it is a, it is a crucial geostrategic, crucial part of the world that I can't even imagine we will not maintain a presence in one way or the other in this decade or the next. So I, we'll go back. It'll just be at a time and place that isn't of our choosing.
1: I, I, and, and just to steel man the argument against staying, you know, the the better, the better, best argument I think is that we need to focus on great power competition now. And what they, what the Biden administration says is that this is a tw- almost a 20th century, this is a threat from 20 years ago and, you know, sort of what you were saying before. But the problem with that is that the strategy for confronting China or Russia is that you have a strong alliance of lots of other countries that make that, that, that box them in, that contain them. Um, the message that we're sending to our weaker allies with this total humiliation of Ashraf Ghani, the elected president, is that we're not a good ally; that we're not a good, we're not a strong horse. But you cannot rely on us. So the idea that and this that is you're some, safer
2: bandwagoning with the strong power. Exactly. Nearby, so, so this is, Stephen Walt, for all his flaws, has a pretty good theory about exactly the, the tensions between balancing
1: and bandwagon. And so, so the idea that this is somehow going to free up resources to go after China, it's also going to create doubt with countries like Vietnam and South Korea, Japan, all these other countries that are facing the threat of China about, are we going to be there for them when the going gets tough? And, uh, and so I think it undermines the Biden foreign policy message of we're back engaged in the world and we're taking all these things seriously and everything else, because this is not a serious thing. And the idea that a great power cannot afford 10 to $20 billion a year and 3000 forces to protect women's schools in Afghanistan and a, and a and an allied Afghan military and security force and elected government is pathetic. That we're not a great power if that's how we think, and that's that's right. a big part of confronting great powers too, which is that we have to convince the world that we too are like exceptional and big, and this is a small this is the action of a small country a defeated
0: country and. It's, I, it's just, uh, it's nauseating. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm driven again, uh, I've done this once before on the podcast, to read a poem by Philip Larkin, written in 1969, called Homage to a Government. Next year we are to bring all the soldiers home for lack of money, and it is all right. Places they guarded or kept orderly. We want the money for ourselves at home instead of working, and this is all right. It's hard to say who wanted it to happen, but now it's been decided, nobody minds. The places are a long way off, not here, which is all right, and from what we hear, the soldiers there only made trouble happen. Next year, we shall be easier in our minds. Next year, we shall be living in a country that brought its soldiers home for lack of money. The statues will be standing in the same tree-muffled squares and look nearly the same. Our children will not know it's a different country. All we can hope to leave them now is money." Um, so, uh, let me just, uh, pull back, uh, and talk to you about express VPN. You've heard me talk about it often on this podcast, very often, uh, they're coming at your data. Uh, they're using your clicks, your, your history, everything you do, uh, w- on your computer with your, uh, ISP, ad- your IP address. Uh, And they're selling it to each other, Uh, big tech, uh, data harvesters, and then they're selling you things and they know too much about you. And they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to. They don't have to get your consent. That's why you need ExpressVPN because there your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and masks your IP address. By giving you a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN users, which makes it more difficult for third parties to identify you and harvest your data. And the best part is ExpressVPN is so easy to use. Whatever device you're on, smart TV, phone, laptop, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary for more. And I need to add, I need to go on to talk to you about what you, where you're sitting when you go to expressvpn.com to protect your IP address if you're doing work. You're sitting in a desk chair at home now, a lot of us still working at home because of COVID, and you know what? Your back hurts your core hurts, Uh, your lumbar support is bad. You need an X chair. I'm sitting in one, it's a joy. It's got patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to your lower back. And with their new HX HMT technology, you can get heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk, it goes right to your core, that heat and massage technology, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery and energy. Four different massage modes and fast warming technology when you're sore. So instead of your old comfortable office chair, look forward as I do to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. It's on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free. X-Wheel Blade, Casters, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, so uh, we're still reeling from the... uh, Johnson and Johnson pause, and I uh, gotta say, I'm heartened. I find myself heartened by uh, the elite reaction to the pause, because, as far as I can tell, not many people seem to have gone, well, that's really important. I'm so glad they did it. Like there's the the opportunity cost and the uh, the sort of stuff that uh, Noah was talking about yesterday about how this can increase vaccine hesitancy and, uh, and seem to um, uh, give people who don't want to, who might otherwise feel the moral pressure to get the shot, to say, ah, I don't need to do it. I'm not going to do it. And you know, if there's a problem with Johnson & Johnson, there might be a problem with these other things. I'm just not going to do it anymore. And Noah, you went on a dig last night to see what's going on nationwide in relation to vaccine appointments which as all of us know were a, a bitch to get you know a month like you know we were staying up for 3 hours clicking on things over and over and over and over again so no give us a give us a fill on where we are and this was sort of the day that we heard that you know the FDA and the CDC had panicked over 6 cases out of 7 million doses delivered yeah.
2: Literally a one in a million chance, which used to be a euphemism for insignificant risk. I guess not anymore.
0: Non-existent risk, actually, I think.
2: Well, uh, so yeah, my dig, my deep dig, consisted of me watching television and literally Googling uh, COVID demand. And I came up with... God bless you. God bless you for your research. Yeah, on my phone. Yeah, precisely. And just reams of exclusively local news sources all over the country indicating that the demand wall is upon us. Now, it's not evident in the data yet. We still have plenty of demand according to the daily, uh, you know, uh, vaccine doses that are being administered. But sites are thinning out. People are missing their second appointments. And in every one of these local, very local stories, you know, WXYZ reports um, an increasing uh, evident a, a lack of uh, a demand for for these vaccines. And it's not just in rural counties or Trump counties. It's in urban counties. It's in suburban counties. There really is no socioeconomic thread. Uh, you can just, you know, we've known that this was going to happen. 120 million Americans plus have gotten at least one dose of this shot. Almost half the country has vaccinated. And we, you know, you're going to find that people are just hesitant naturally. And we're not talking about uneducated Hill people here. We are talking about risk averse news consumers, many of whom are are fairly affluent and educated. Um, So this is something that you've seen some reluctance for the for national news to cover. And I think they're probably going to be forced to pretty soon. But unfortunately, John, I was heartened, too, by the immediate reaction, which was, this is going to increase vaccine hesitancy. It's, it's insane risk aversion. It's the precautionary principle gone mad. And then you started to see these outlets talk themselves into it, where it's, you know, oh, well, this is actually best practices. And what if we had just gone ahead with this? What message would that convey? That would convey that this vaccination above all else, including your safety. They began to make their rationalizations. And the rationalizations, eventually, I, I've begun to see have won out. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't see anybody tackling this. And what you saw from um, I forget his first name, Zients, who's the head of the Jeffrey, um, Jeff is the head of the of the Biden administration's task force is that yeah, this doesn't even matter. Johnson Johnson's five percent of our total supplies here. We have three hundred million doses. Everybody's going to get vaccinated. Don't even worry about it. They don't know what to do about the demand wall, so they simply pretend it doesn't exist.
0: And they're going to. I got to quote Fauci. I got to quote Fauci. Okay, because this is where we start getting into the stop talking. Please stop talking. You're making everything worse. (laughs) I've been talking about this for weeks. But listen to this. This is what he said yesterday on CBS News, okay? Uh, Six women reporting potentially deadly clots had them between six days and 13 days after getting the one-dose shot. So if you've had it a month or two ago, I think you don't really need to worry about anything, he stated stating, saying that even those who have had it more recently should remember it as a very rare event, okay? Good, right? Okay. It's less than one in a million, he said, which is what we just said, right? And then he goes on. Having said that, you still want to be alert to some symptoms, such as severe headache, some difficulty in movement, or some chest discomfort and difficulty breathing. He says it's a less than a one in a million shot, Right, and if you remember Dumb and Dumber, we were all laughing at Jim Carrey because when when Lauren Holly says to him, "You have a one in a million shot of getting me," and he's like, "So you think there's a chance?" <laughs> Fauci's saying there's a chance if you have a headache or some chest discomfort. But he's not even you should being be alert to that. One not in even, a million.
2: He's not even being specific about the demographics who are susceptible to this. All of whom are women. Why would he leave that out? Women In part because we probably, they're probably, the assumption is on the part of people who talk out of turn on this sort of thing, is that there are complications with hormonal um, therapies for uh, birth control. And maybe it's irresponsible to say that without a really thorough investigation, what have you, but it's not irresponsible to say that all of this occurred in women. Why would you not say that?
0: I mean, all I'm saying is that they 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 do this out of an abundance of caution. We talked about the problem with the abundance of caution standard, which is that it's literally a moment when you don't want an abundance of caution. You do not want government acting out of an abundance of caution because an abundance of caution has unintended consequences in exactly the way that we're talking about. Something I what I yeah Abe, go ahead.
3: Well, so something I saw all over uh, media yesterday. It's just depressing because we kind of alluded to it in the podcast in the morning when the news broke. And then throughout the day, I saw it all over social media, um, which were posts saying things like, see, maybe it's time uh, people stopped looking down their noses at those of us who uh, questioned the safety of these vaccines. And they said, they said we were crazy. They said we were stupid. Uh, You know, uh, they said we were troglodytes to, 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 to wait and see.
1: I, mean, I just want to say I got the J and J and I feel great. <laughs> I got it you did ten days ago. It's it's amazing. Yeah.
2: You're not out of the woods yet, I, Eli. Oh, okay. You got but at anyway, least six days I feel fine. to live in terror, <laughs> abject fear. Don't leave your house, whatever you do.
0: I mean, look, these are complicated issues, and the fact is that they as as Noah has been saying for a year, they have no compunction about skewing and spinning and 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 playing footsie and playing games with the truth, uh, based on a larger based on what they believe is a larger interest, right? That was the whole thing about how don't wear masks because they were worried that masks were going to run out and healthcare professionals weren't going to be able to wear them, right? So so that was a noble lie in pursuit of the truth. Here, for some reason, you're not allowed to noble lie and I don't even think it's a noble lie, but let's say they think it's a noble lie. The calculation is six out of seven million. Okay, so let's, let's knock that number down, okay? So let's say it's only women, and let's say just for the sake of argument that that means that it's 3.7 or 3.8 million women have gotten the Johnson & Johnson shot because they make up 51% of the population. And then let's say it's only women 18 to 48, so it's only half... Of them, okay? So then it's six out of like 1.9 million. So what is the statistical difference between six out of one out of two million and six out of seven million? You know what it is? It is non-existent. It, I mean there is no statistic I mean obviously there's a statistical difference, but if you drew it on a chart, you could not, even with a you know a magnifying glass, see the distinction between them. And they're still going for it when they believe in their right and their obligation sometimes not to tell people what they should, you know, the, 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 the deep, dark truth. So explain this to me. I'm, I'm serious. Like I'm trying to think through, I mean, I thought yesterday it was because of the by the sort of institutional bias of the FDA and the CDC. And that that might be it, but it doesn't explain Fauci saying be alert to your symptoms in case you have a headache Or, you know, or you have a headache or some chest pains. So you got two million women have headache and chest pains. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm getting the blood clots. And one, you know, I have a one in six chance of dying since one of the six women died. Right. That's how you create a panic, not how you stop a panic. You don't have a one
2: in a million chance of being struck by lightning. But you do have a one in a million chance of dying on a 200 mile road trip to California, so you probably shouldn't drive to California.
1: Is it I possible mean, that Fauci did not do this deliberately? That he was asking he's answering a question. He was sort of riffing
0: because he does so many interviews. Yeah, because he riffs. That's the problem. Yeah. He shouldn't riff. He should get off the. He should get off the air. The guy
2: does 14 interviews a day. I don't know what else he does. Uh, but I also he's, think he's he talks a, to YouTube hosts. He has a schedule <laughs> packed with <laughs> interviews. <laughs>
1: I know, I know.
2: But I yeah.
3: I, I think he's responding to um, the, the, a certain like public need in a in a particular among certain Americans like who actually want this stuff. They they to them pronouncements like Fauci's is a sign that that these agencies care, that they're working for you, that they're alert to your concerns. Um They don't see it as uh, just a bunch of uh, alarmist gibberish.
2: Here's something really annoying, though. So Barack Obama is going to do a one hour special, right, to promote vaccination. And you already know what the content is going to be. We've heard it all a million times. What he can't do because his political tribe won't allow him to do it is to go maskless, is to go to the movies, is to dine indoors, is to do travel to Florida in an airplane, maskless, first class even. He can't do any of this sort of thing because it, as much as it's we understand it to be risk, the, the level of risk to be something that you would assume in your natural day-to-day or going out the door, he can't do it because they can't allow themselves to be seen as risk-averse in this moment. It would undermine the Biden administration. The Biden administration is currently lobbying Michigan to shut down again they they are incubating this level of risk aversion. They can't message this thing correctly. It's politically impossible for them to do it.
0: You think he's not you think Barack Obama is not da- bouncing around the world on his private plane right now? I mean, you think every every, when every this administration
2: person... when members of this administration are photographed on private planes, they're masked. They're double masked. On yeah. private planes. All of them are vaccinated. All of them are tested regularly.
0: So right, so their their version of, uh, of of showing the flag and being patriotic and responsible and you know uh, le- leading a you know moral equivalent of war effort is to is to behave in is to behave in mitigating fashion while the message that is coming out from the CDC and the FDA is that um, uh, eradication which is the other part here, which is what vaccination is for, you know, as close to eradication as possible, uh, is trickier and uh, kind of scary. And there might be a little a bit of a reason to be scared about it. Um, I think part of the interesting thing here and part of the, the the tragedy is that I again say I don't have any evidence for this except human nature and everything I've known in my nearly 60 years on this planet, which is that there are tens of millions of people who do not want to get vaccinated because they are afraid of needles. And one of the great benefits of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it's one shot and not two. And it's not as though when you go get the, the first Pfizer or the first Moderna shot and you're a person who is terrified of needles or has a you know needle phobia, whatever it is that you're suddenly cured of your needle phobia because you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You're going to have it again because it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a, a childhood trauma thing. I mean, I don't even know what it is, but it's like, you know, that first time when you were, you know, when you were four and you noticed going in and it really hurt and then you cried and the doctor was stupid about it or whatever. And then, you know, I mean, I have a kid who runs out of the room when he sees a needle. I, I, I know it's there, you know, he, he, he show he's, he, he so you know, he mans up and. You know, soldiers down and 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 goes through it, but he is terrified, and that doesn't go away just because you get older. And so, this was one of the solutions to that problem. I only have to do it once. It's not even the timing; it's I just okay. I'll close my eyes. I'll go and I'll do it once. And they've interfered with that. Like, what are they going to do when they announce that everything's okay? You think everybody? You think people are going to still want to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? They've compromised it. They've adulterated it. They've made it very, very difficult for that to become. And, you know, this is the thing also with parents and stuff like that. Noah's been talking about this. For kids, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is going to be the way to do this. When it is deemed necessary that everybody in the country should get it so you can stop wearing masks in school and stuff, the obvious solution to this is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for anybody under the age of 12, once it gets there, because it's like any of it you go in you get the shot and you're done and it's over with not that you go back in 3 weeks and go through you know two possible reaction cycles so who's going to do that? That's uh, what you were saying yesterday. No, yeah,
2: because it was already a hard, you know, slog for this particular cohort, the risk-averse cohort, none of whom are particularly uneducated, who were being asked to, you know, impose on their kid the kind of ordeal they went through in the second shot. When you're a little younger, when you're under forty, for example, you have a bad time of it in the second shot. It's a rough twenty-four hours. and you're well, asking you can.
0: If, you don't. You, you don't necessarily. You did, and other people do. And it's, know, it's, but it's, it's not pretty common. Um,
2: yeah. so to say that you're imposing that on your kid is, is an emotional ordeal for a parent. And now you're saying basically that this, they, they could have these other complications. But another thing the public health, you know, the Fauci's of the world and the other people in this administration seem, seem to think they can just flip this on and off like a switch. Ah, it's just a couple of days pause. We'll do some research. We'll do some studies and then it'll probably be back on the market and everything will be fine as though they can just reverse this. It's extremely myopic and very frustrating.
0: I mean, I I know somebody who, it took him weeks to get an appointment, got the Johnson & Johnson appointment, gets news yesterday that it's canceled, okay, lives in D.C. You know, it's like one of those, well, you're you're basically saying, screw you to me, so I'm going to say, screw you to this. Like, really, you're going to put me through this again, particularly in D.C., which has the, you know, among the worst consumer experiences with dealing with trying to get a shot. I mean, you know, that's the other part is that you want people to feel good about this happening. So when they go to talk to their friends and neighbors and people who are more hesitant than they, they're not going like, oh my God, I was at a Walgreens. It took me three hours. It was just so horrible. Then it, you know, it's like one of those things where it's, when you reach a certain age and you have to get a colonoscopy and then all anyone ever tells you is how awful the experience is, doesn't exactly mean that you don't, you like get ready and willing and able to go get a colonoscopy. Um, You know, I mean that, you know, there are things you're supposed to do to sort of help people get through the sorts of things that make them neurotic and nervous. And the fact that our leading authorities are, are contributing rather than uh, settling things down uh you know is a is a mark of uh is a mark of how nightmarish this has all been having them uh in the lead. And uh, you know, some of that and that story you could have been following for the last year if you were subscribing to the Bonson Group's two internet newsletters, the DCToday.com and dividendcafe.com, which deal with the interplay of the markets and policy and monetary policy, inflation and all of that. But David Bonson uh data-driven guy with his firm, two point eight billion dollars under management by Coastal Management Firm. David is a data guy, a numbers guy, and uh, and understands the economic impact of COVID and the pandemic, and has been watching this in a granular fashion and has supplied me as he will as he does with uh, his more conventional looks at uh, at macroeconomic problems. Uh, with, um, just inestimable, uh, value in, uh, in detailing, uh, the kinds of overreactions, the kinds of misunderstandings, and the kinds of, uh, mistakes that, uh, public officials have made, uh, even out of uh, totally goodwill in the course of the pandemic, um, and uh, I just, I can't commend these heartily enough to you. The DCToday.com, DividendCafe.com. From the Bonson Group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Um, so what else should we, uh, what else should we talk about? Anybody got anything? I'll tell you something. Can we go back to Afghanistan just for a minute? Okay, this is not Afghanistan. This is popular culture. Disney Plus is showing its uh, second Marvel series after WandaVision. It's called Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Huge hit, apparently. Uh, four episodes in. It's a conventional sort of, it's kind of like a spy thriller. I mean, with some superhero super, you know, stuff. And um, and so there's a character in it. Uh, Captain America's dead. And they've uh, America's recruited a new Captain America. Uh, a A, mil- a hero. Uh, an American hero uh, who has three medals of honor, which by the way, seems kind of weird to me because apparently it's three events on the same day. So I think you'd only get one medal of honor anyway, but he's like a good, serious, patriotic American, you know, like amazing guy, 30 years old, you know, and uh, Afghan and Iraq war veteran. uh, And he is now captain America. And he has a conversation in the last episode with his buddy, And he says, you know, everyone talks to me about uh, my medals. And uh, it's like a reminder of the worst day of my life, he says. And then the other thing he says is, and you know, if people really knew what we did there, they wouldn't think we were such heroes. This is a mass-marketed television show brought to you by Disney that is trashing a character who is a Medal of Honor winner in Afghanistan. What the hell is going on? How is, how, how, remember we support the troops? Remember you walk somewhere and every, you know, and, 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 you know, everybody but Glenn Greenwald applauds? I mean, what, you know. I mean, I, it just—it struck me that that the fact that uh, they're very careful on this show, they had to re-edit all kinds of things because apparently there was a pandemic plot. They started filming it in 2019, and they had to sort of they—they they basically had to go back with you know sound and re-recording things and cutting things out. The plot doesn't make much sense anymore because the the animating event that everybody was responding to is no longer in it because apparently it was a. It was, it was an engineered pandemic or something. Um, but this they left in. This is now okay. I mean, it is a show that supposedly deals with, oh, you think we're such heroes? Well, you know, what about Tuskegee and stuff like that? Okay, so that's already stuff that makes me sick. But I, I just thought this was a very striking fact and sort of helps support, you know, if this becomes a thinkable way to talk about these things. When it was the opposite of thinkable, just uh, you know, I don't know, seven years ago or something like that. Maybe that helps explain why Biden uh, thinks it's okay to say, "Well, it's twenty years since nine eleven. We're pulling out. We're going to pull out on nine eleven from Afghanistan just to rub the salt in the wound." I don't know about that. that. I we, mean, we have to okay.
1: Abu Ghraib was what that broke in t- two thousand four, two thousand five.
0: Yeah, but those weren't Medal of Honor winners, yeah, right?
1: No, that's that's true, and but. But the... I'm saying popular culture. I'm not talking yeah, yeah. about
0: like news reporting and stuff like that.
1: I will say, related to your popular culture point, I got sucked into WandaVision because everybody was talking about how unique it was, that it was a take on various modes of sitcoms in our earlier eras. And that was all kind of interesting. And then it turned into this dopey superhero thing about Vibranian and all the stuff that I totally don't care about. And a bunch of people fighting in the sky with laser beams and stuff. And I was like, what? never again. Anyway, because like, everyone said War Division, um, you have to watch it. It's like it just goes
0: from I Love Lucy to,
1: you know, oh, my God. I loved
0: it. I loved it. But I do want to say, I've said this on GLOP, my other podcast, so I'll say it here. The central problem with the superhero movie, at least for me, is exactly what you're talking about, which is that – so there, there are these indestructible characters, right? They're all – some of them are gods. Some of them are – you know, they have superhuman pets. Some of them are mutants. You know, basically they can fly through into buildings and they're fine. They, they don't have a scratch on them. So they spend half an hour punching each other. What are they punching each other for? <laughs> all right. Thor can't kill Captain America. Iron Man can't kill Thor. Thor can't kill, you know, Iron Man can't kill Captain and Captain America can't kill Iron Man. What are they punching each other for? It doesn't hurt. It's like it's like throwing a nerf ball and, and these things end with them, and all they do is destroy buildings. What, why are they even bothering? It's like it, it's like uh, it's like mutual assured destruction, except without any destruction. They have e- They're equally powerful. so it doesn't make any sense. That they that they spend the last part of the movie punching each other. Just to, That's to all. I'm weigh concerned.
2: in on your you know uh, sort of knee jerk anti Americanism in, in pop culture. I mean, it is sort of the cool thing. It's a hip thing to assume. I mean, literally, what this character is just assuming, having no, assuming the audience doesn't know. Like, uh, predicated on the assumption that the audience is ignorant, that you don't know, I don't know, we don't know. So the America must be doing things that are bad that's the assumption that is hip and cool and it has infiltrated every institution in this country um you know this is what the 1619 project is predicated on the sort of unseen but ubiquitous influence of structural racism um it is it is the the assumption that marks you as a sophisticated person even though it's not predicated on anything smart well, the, or, or or evidence-based because it is yeah. cultural it will eventually yield the antithesis of it because culture breeds a reaction, an opposite reaction most likely. It will be countercultural at some point to think the opposite, to say the opposite. Um, that's a pre- that's, You can set your watch by it. I don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen or what form it will take but there's always a reaction to a dominant culture and that is anti-Americanism is the dominant culture.
1: Well, I would just say that the, maybe the shift that John's talking about is that for a long time, Hollywood portrayed soldiers in these wars as like really good people who were duped and fighting this pointless quagmire And, uh, but, you know, they deserve all this respect because they're the ones who've been, you know, sacrificing. They're going to be, you know, for, for an, an unwinnable war. That's familiar. Uh, but this might be a, a sort of turn in the culture in some ways towards, no, 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 you really are a monster, which is what we saw during the vietnam era and the aftermath where people were spitting on soldiers as they
0: returned you're the baby
1: killers and everything like that.
0: And you know, this is a very uh, culturally that uh, makes us an interesting moment because if if hollywood in this case we're not we're not talking about you know easy rider and like counterculture right. movies of the early 70s we're talking about disney the ultimate corporate product creator for middle america that is sort of buying into this cliche, which by the way, does feast on the 1619 project. There's a character in Falcon and the winter soldier who is a black captain America that nobody knew about. Cause they did, they did unlike they did experiments on him and, or Hydra, the evil that did experiments on him. And then they threw him in jail and then they harvested his blood and they did Tuskegee ish things to him. And now he's living in a shack in Baltimore, really, really, really angry which I don't really think would necessarily be the way somebody with the powers of captain America who was really angry would live. He might go and like Rob banks and stuff and, you know, go out of vibranium. Yeah. But, uh, but, but uh, so it's in there too. But what is interesting is if liberal culture is feeling its oats as it is so much in moving toward anti-Americanism as a kind of default, yeah, there's going to be some kind of a blowback. I'm just not quite sure what form it takes because we do have, as I alluded to earlier, we have a significant portion of the right that has gone anti-American in its own way that shares some of these biases and these feelings from, from opposite moral frameworks and um, and won't be part of the uh, counter-reaction. It'll be, it'll be from uh, the children
3: of the woke.
2: It very well ah. could be. I mean, I'm, I'm literally writing a yeah. book now about it. It had the countercultural reaction to libertinism on the, on the left that nobody could foresee ever being rolled back, particularly by people who believed everything they believed. Yeah. And but
0: indeed. it happened. That's exciting. Well, Eli Lake, thank you so much as ever for joining oh, us. Oh, thank you for, for having me.
1: Before I go, I'd going to our... say a shout out to my dear friend Adam who uh lifelong democrat but is a regular listener to this podcast proving that neoconservatism is still working.
0: Ah, uh, yes, we I hope we, I hope his reality. The Canary is in the Coal Mine. Sufficiently mugged. <laughs> we are the Canary in the Coal Mine. Uh, anyway, uh, it's great to have you. uh, And for uh, Abe and Noah and the absent Christine Rosen, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.